This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Inside the Petri Dish, the podcast that puts science under the microscope. Due to social distancing, it's just me, Alice Gray, for this episode. Each of the Inside the Petri Dish team will be bringing you a special COVID-19 episode over the coming weeks to help us understand this pandemic. Yesterday, Boris Johnson announced new measures in the UK to help prevent the spread of COVID-19, also known as coronavirus. We're being encouraged to stay home, work from home where possible, and self-isolate if we have symptoms or have pre-existing conditions. For this special episode of Inside the Petri Dish, I talked to a very dear friend, Dr. Harry Ferguson. He's a doctor staffing a coronavirus ward in South Wales. He shares what it's like to work on a coronavirus ward, what symptoms you should look out for, his opinions on current behaviours and restrictions, as well as the loss of his majestic beard for his personal protection equipment. I'm Dr. Harry Ferguson. I'm a senior house officer in general medicine, uh, working within South Wales. I am a junior doctor staffing the COVID-19 coronavirus exclusion unit at a major uh, hospital. So it's a respiratory specific illness. Uh, So the major symptoms to be looking out for is like cough, fever, runny nose is a rare symptom. There's a really good infographic that Alice can link Um, which basically shows the prevalence of symptoms in COVID-19 versus flu versus a common cold. So mostly it's a pneumonia-like picture with a a cough and a fever, uh, generally unwell, sometimes rigors, very rarely diarrhea, vomiting, but not particularly, myalgia, muscle aches, that kind of thing, headache. So it's not the only coronavirus. Coronaviruses is a group of viruses uh, which usually cause the common cold. Uh, This particular strain is quite virulent and infectious. We know that it originated in China and my understanding of the current science is that it jumped from animals to humans in live meat markets in China. Flattening the curve is an attempt to delay as many of those cases from happening at the same time as possible so we spread them out over a longer period of time and therefore burden the health system less. All of those new cases happen at the same time because everyone gets infected quickly. That would really put a burden on the health system because if you've got lots of people coming into hospital that means that a certain percentage of those are going to be sick enough that they need ITU, that they need ventilators and respirators. The World Health Organization's recommendations and guidelines for uh, in a pandemic, which I was reading earlier today, a really interesting article about the way that China has contained the epidemic. So they're only seeing about 10 to 20 new cases a day in China in a population of 1.4 billion, um, which is really good containment, actually. And the way that they're doing that was by collecting the data and sharing it amongst healthcare professionals, uh, social distancing, We know that the virus occurs in clusters, which is usually small family units, so they're isolating clusters, and you can only achieve these things by sharing the information and the data. And the article was basically criticizing Boris Johnson and the government's current approach, uh, which they feel is too softly, softly. You know, at the moment we haven't closed schools, we haven't canceled work, which is a very broad term. Um, 
a lot of universities are currently cancelling all contact teaching. I know that Cardiff University has moved to do that today. US has banned travel against Europe and the UK now included, but I'm not sure where we stand with travel. The current guidance from Public Health England says that you don't have to self-isolate as a healthcare worker. If you've worked with confirmed or suspected cases, you can still go about your daily lives. You know, gyms are still open, mass gatherings are still happening or allowed. But uh, we're being criticised, basically, because I don't think those measures that we're taking are adequate at the moment. Basically, rigorous enforcing of social distancing rather than the nudge uh, psychology behind it of encouraging people you need to, you know, say gyms can no longer be open, mass gatherings cancelled, not allowed under law. I don't want to say there should be sanctions for people breaking this, but rather than just encouraging it, it should be de facto, you know, social isolation and social distancing, basically to prevent the spread. If if people are still, you know, for example, if I am working with suspected or confirmed cases and I go to the gym and I touch equipment and I haven't deconned properly, I could be spreading it to all number of immunocompromised individuals, people taking it back home, old people, young people, everyone basically. You know, it, we can flatten the curve and delay things by people not passing it to each other and we do that by social distancing, um, which hasn't really come into effect at the moment. Now, current public health guidance says if you're working with it, don't have to self-isolate unless you're symptomatic. I personally suspect that we'll see a move more towards healthcare professionals having to self-isolate regardless if they're symptomatic, and only being allowed to socialise with other healthcare professionals who have been in contact with it. So therefore you're keeping it within healthcare professionals and within hospitals, and then people outside of hospitals should not be picking it up from other people, in theory. Based on the statistics that we have from patients in China, the elderly, there is a higher mortality rate, the immunocompromised and immunosuppressed, those on steroids, biologic medications, DMARDs probably, chemotherapy obviously, the pregnant. It would be a reflex to say young children, but actually I think the current suspicion or understanding from the limited data is that children are less at risk because they're exposed to so many coronavirus uh, subspecies. Um, you know, in schools and nurseries and such. So it actually looks like children are less affected. But the thing is, even if you go out in public, you don't know if somebody's living at home with somebody who's immunocompromised or immunosuppressed. You, you don't know how many people you're passing it on to, basically. Because I follow a couple of healthcare pages on Instagram, and obviously everyone's talking about this. One of the things that they were talking about was social distancing, and there were examples of nurses who were still actively going out and not practicing social distancing. This was over in the States and they were being criticized by other nurses and healthcare professionals. And it got me thinking about my own behavior because obviously this we've only opened the unit three days ago and the official guidance says, as long as you're asymptomatic, you don't have to self-isolate. But I personally think we're gonna move away from that because you could be an asymptomatic carrier and then you're still passing it on to other people. So I think um, at the moment it's been pretty normal, but going on from this point today, you know, I stocked up on all my essentials. I'm self-isolating other than going to work to the hospital. So usually going into work, I would wear shirt and trousers. I'd walk into work, I'd work, I'd drive home in that. But actually now we're not allowed to come in. No healthcare professionals are allowed to come in in uniform or what they'd usually wear. You can, but you've got to get changed basically once you get into work into your uniform that you're going to work in. 
So I come in, I get changed into scrubs, uh, scrubs and trainers at work, and then I wear that at work, I get changed, uh, and then I, I, I go home in my sippies. PPE, or for those of you that don't know, is personal protective equipment, is stuff that we wear to prevent ourselves from becoming infected or passing on uh, droplet nuclei, uh, which contain active COVID virus. Usual standard level of PPE for an, for an infectious disease, dependent on what the disease is, might be a pinny, like an, a, a plastic disposable apron that you wear, plus or minus a mask and gloves, always gloves. The guidance from Public Health England on Friday, three days ago, was that if you were seeing a suspected case, it was pinny, uh, apron, gloves, and what we call a surgical mask, which doesn't form a tight seal with the face. Only if you were seeing positive patients or performing something known as an aerosol generating procedure, something that aerosolizes droplets of somebody's mucosal secretions into the air that could possibly spread and seed the virus, you would have to wear what we consider full PPE, which is a surgical gown. So the difference is that covers your forearms as well, right down, leaves no skin exposed. You would also wear what we call an N95 mask, which is a face mask, which forms a tight seal and you have to be tested so that the the seal is, is, you know, is, you know, sufficient. And then we also have to wear a face, uh, face visor because if somebody sneezes or coughs into your eyes, that's a mucosal surface that you can also become infected by. So that was the guidance on Friday, but they changed it on Saturday, is my understanding, to say that actually when seeing positive cases, you no longer had to do that. You just had to wear the basic PPE, only if you were doing aerosol generating procedures such as CPR or intubating a patient did you have to wear the full PPE. But actually, we're not really sure how we feel about that. And I think within my health board, we're going to move towards modifying the guidelines to make them a bit tighter. In terms of how it works out in terms of practicalities, each patient is in an isolation room. Before you go into the room, you put a pinny on, you put your mask on and your gloves on. You go into the room, you see the patient. When you finish seeing the patient, you take your gloves off, then you use alcohol hand gel. Then you take your apron off, then you use alcohol hand gel. Then you come out of the room, then you take your mask off, use alcohol hand gel, and then you have to wash your hands. And if you have to see 12 patients, you're alcohol hand gelling about 40 times plus in a day. If you're going in to see a positive patient and you're in full PPE, it's, it's, the, same, it's the same procedure. If you go into a patient's room to, um, take blood or cannulate or do any procedures that you need to do. You have to take everything in with you, dispose of it in there, but you can't dispose of your sharps in the room. So, so you have to have a buddy system. Somebody comes to the door so you can dispose of things through the door in a sterile manner. You've got to clean everything that goes into the room once it comes out, if it needs to comes out. So it has to be cleaned with, you know, alcohol wipes. And then after that, it has to be cleaned with chlorinated solution. Public Health England have been criticized about changing the PPE guidance. Um, you know that people are saying oh it's because they're limiting the supplies because we know we've only got limited stock of the full surgical gowns and, and and n95 masks which may or may not be the case obviously there is worry about stocks and supplies of, of full ppe and you have to and whether or not you have to ration it basically You'll probably have seen the news articles in the last couple of weeks about uh, it originally started in the States that one of the health uh, 
authorities over there issued, I think it was the CDC issued a pictorial guide of what kind of facial hairstyles would pass or would be suitable for wearing with a full face mask. And I'm, I've been, I've had a full beard for seven years and- Glorious beard. Stop it. It's, 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 uh, it's part of my facial identity. I knew that I would have to modify my facial hair in order to fit a mask. So I, I did fit testing, which is where they are testing if your mask is satisfactorily fitting. The way they do that is they put a hood over your head and then spray in an aerosolized um, substance that you can taste if it leaks past the seal. Quite a bitter taste. And I failed in a record time of 13 seconds with a mask on and then I basically had to shave and I've got a goatee at the moment so I've got it it's all contained within the mask and I, I passed fit testing on the second go round fortunately I don't want to come across as facetious or like because like it's it's a small sacrifice to make in terms it, it's a beard it's really neither here nor there but it's I guess one thing I can compare it to is almost if someone said um, if you want to continue looking after these patients you've got to shave your head even if you're even if you're a woman with long hair, I think most people would say like, "Oh God, that really bothers me," because it's part of your identity in the same way for me. Um, but you know what? That's what I signed up for. So. From the people I've been looking after, we it's all been mostly the older population, so uh, 50 plus. I don't think I've had anybody below the age of 30. A lot of the patients that are coming through are comorbid, so I think the common denominator you could say would be uh, past history of respiratory illness such as COPD, asthma, pulmonary fibrosis, although not all. I am hearing anecdotes from colleagues working in other parts of the country about young people being on ITU and being very unwell with no previous health conditions. And that's something that medics are, that's, that's a really hot topic at the moment actually, because we're expecting to see news reports of young people who are previously fit and well dying of coronavirus. But we think the important thing to bear in mind is that they will be a minority. You know, uh, looking at the statistics at the moment that we have for the data for the patients in Italy and China, I think um, it's something like 0.5 to 1% of young people become critically unwell. Something like 10% of overall cases in hospital require ITU admission or meet the criteria for ITU admission and become unwell enough. But something like 0.5 to 1% is my understanding of young people with no previous health conditions become seriously unwell with it. But actually, having spoken with my older brother, who's also a doctor, if you're thinking statistically minded, the number of cases that are not being detected because they're not unwell enough to come to hospital is orders of magnitude larger. So actually the number of overall patients that will ever have this infection that actually get that unwell and die with no previous health conditions is, is probably orders of magnitude smaller than that. But we expect the media will take those cases and blow them out of proportion. Anybody who comes in and meets the criteria, any suspected infective chest pathology, now we have to ask the question and swab them and ask, you know, could this be COVID? 
Um, most of these people that are coming in with a pneumonia-like picture are still being treated as bacterial pneumonias because we don't have any treatment for COVID at the moment. Um, but we can't, you can't actually discern clinically or radiologically or biochemically on the blood tests if they do or don't also have a bacterial infection. So we're treating everyone as we usually would and then saying, you're also corona positive. We can't really say how much of that is your clinic is, is representing your clinical picture. There's no treatment that we can offer for it anyway, so it doesn't really make any difference here or there. The one thing I think that is changing is that we're making very clear plans for every single patient about escalation status and ceilings of care, um, which if, if you don't work in the healthcare industry, what we mean by that is treatments they should or should not be for, what they should or should not have in the event that they deteriorate and become more clinically unwell. So if you're being looked after on a ward and you've maxed out on all the therapies, but your blood pressure's still in your boots, or your oxygen levels are terrible and you need high flow oxygen, or you need inotropic support to increase your blood pressure, or you need closer monitoring, or any reasons that you're becoming more unwell and you might need ITU, we make that decision, you know, whether or not a patient should go to ITU, because not everyone who goes to ITU survives an ITU admission. Um, it's not without morbidity uh, if you do survive, um, physically, psychologically. Um, we discuss CPR status, a DNA CPR, whether or not somebody should or should not be resuscitated in the event that the heart was to stop. And for somebody that is a muggle, <laughs> they might think, why would you not resuscitate somebody? And the answer to that question is only 10%, I think there's a statistic of inpatient cardiac arrests, we successfully get a rhythm back, that we su successfully restart the heart. If you've got pre-existing heart disease, if you've got pre-existing health conditions, lung conditions, diabetes, um, other illnesses, that lowers the probability of success that we can restart your heart. It's a brutal procedure, CPR. If you've ever seen it in real life, uh, good CPR should break the ribs. Um, it is a brutal procedure. It is not dignified. Um, and if the likelihood is that somebody's not going to survive, it's not fair on them or their family or the team looking after them to do that. Even if it is successful and we get a heart rhythm back and we send somebody to ITU, they can be brain dead, which again is not appropriate. It's not fair on their mother family. It's not in their best interest. Yeah, so that's that's a decision that we're that we're making and we're having discussions with patients and their families about what their wishes would be and what we feel is appropriate and we're doing that. We're being crystal clear about that for every patient. People are saying it's not a big deal or we're blowing this out of proportion. I think what my response to that would be is we'd rather be safe than sorry. It is highly infectious, highly virulent with a higher mortality rate than you know common influenza we don't have a vaccine for this we don't have a treatment for this we're hoping those things will change in the near future but you know if people are blasé about this and say i'm not a risk i'm young fit and healthy you can still be an asymptomatic carrier and be giving it to old people immunocompromised people immunosuppressed groups you know etc so the way that we can prevent the spread of this and contain this is by practicing social distancing um, and thinking about more than just yourself and thinking about those who are less fortunate. Self-distance, self well not self-isolate, but you know, social distancing and hand washing. Don't do something unless you need to do it. It's an emergency. If you need to go to the supermarket to get supplies, 
you know, wash or gel your hands after using the trolleys before getting in your car. Don't put it on your steering wheel if you touch a trolley or a basket. Don't go to the gym, don't go to church, don't go to a wedding, don't go to a funeral. You ask, has there been a big cultural change in men washing their hands? Difficult question to answer because we weren't talking about not washing our hands before, basically. I was watching a YouTube video the other night about this. It was a stand-up comedian doing a really good, a really funny skit. I can't remember what his name was. A really funny skit about how men don't wash their hands, um, which I think probably statistically holds true. Although I don't know, I don't have any sources for that. But um, you can tell people till you're blue in the face to do something to protect themselves and others, and they won't do it until they actually get sick. I would really hope we don't have to tell people not to spit in public. It used to be very common practice in the UK a hundred years ago where you know there were public spittoons and then we understood that TB spread that way so we, we got rid. But I should really hope we don't have to be telling people not to spit in public. If you're coughing stuff up, spit it into a tissue, catch it, kill it, bin it. I would ask that people try and stay reasonable and pragmatic about this. I know that there's a lot of anxiety floating about at the moment and at one end of the extreme spectrum you've got people buying thousands of rolls of toilet paper, even though this isn't a diarrheal illness. Um, and then at the other side of the spectrum you've got people saying, I'm young, fit and healthy, uh, it's not going to affect me, I'm not going to social distance, uh, I'm not worried. And I think uh, you can find a healthy medium between the two because we need to be prepared for this, uh, you know, that it could get worse. And it, it could get worse if people at the other end of the spectrum don't take any responsibility. You know, we need to be washing our hands. We need to be practicing social distancing um, to protect everyone, and especially those most at risk by, by way of herd immunity eventually. Uh, but, but, but before that, social distancing um, and not putting people at risk who don't need to be put at risk because of selfishness. So. On one hand, we do need to be worried about this, but I don't want people, you know, to be losing their collective minds. But, you know, this could get a lot worse if we don't take it seriously. <laughs>